How are you, sir? This is Pierre. Oh. I can't believe I'm talking to you, Dr. A the Great. Oh, I don't know about that. I love listening to you. You have a personality just like my father. I don't think you should feel helpless. You are helpless. Doctor, I really appreciate that. That makes me feel a lot better. You be at peace, or else I'm going to yell at you. Trying to find a reason to speak to you. I think you're the best thing since sliced bread. That Ray, he's something. Thank you so much for what you're doing for all the parents out there. They don't know what I can possibly do. I don't either. I'm getting my money worth, I think, at this phone call. Now, from the studios of Living Bread Radio Network in Canton, Ohio, the hometown of Mother Angelica, here's Dr. Ray. Now, why would I say I don't either know what you could possibly do? I think there's a couple explanations. One, many situations and circumstances in our lives we can't do anything about. So there isn't anything to do to change the situation or to change the person. Now, we can do, we can always do something about ourselves. How do I change my reaction, my thinking to the situation? That's what you can always do. So when I say, I don't know either what you can do, I don't remember that call. But if she's saying, I want to do something about this person. I want to do something about these circumstances. It may be she has no options. But the call probably went on to say, okay, here's what you can do about yourself. To be more at peace with situations you can't control. Good to have you with me. This is the Doctor is In. This is the Monday variant of the Doctor is In. This is E-Person Monday, not email. Nope, nope. It's a homonym, but it still is patriarchal. And eventually we're going to have to get rid of the person, too, because the syllable, second syllable, is son of the son, per son. So uh, somebody's going to complain about that somewhere down the road, and probably not very far down the road, like maybe tomorrow. I get about, well, a lot of e-persons per month. And several years ago, discussing it with the folks at the various uh, places who are my bosses, and I said, i got to do something about these. I can't type out answers to all of them. Obviously, I'd be on the computer all day long, and plus I'd type around three words a minute. I can backspace a lot faster than that. I can delete even faster than that. But actually typing it out, no, because you have to ask too many questions. You really do. And many of the people I say, if you can, please call the program because I'd like to ask questions. i got I got to know a little bit more what you tell me you think is critical to the circumstance, but what I might hear you saying could take me in a different direction. So, that's the birth of e-person monday we will get to uh, i'm looking at the phone we will get to those in a moment i tried counseling didn't work didn't do any good he's in counseling now he's not changing he's been there for a year not making any difference Do you know how many times I hear that? 
I would say a decent percentage of the people who come to me have had previous counseling. Usually short-lived. What is it that didn't work? Now, obviously, counselors vary widely in skill. I think it's safe to say that some could do more damage than they do good. Depending upon their perspective, depending upon whether they respect the person's worldview. But that said, much of the time that people say, yeah, I was in counseling, didn't, didn't change much, I was in counseling, didn't do any good, I was in counseling, I didn't see any progress, what, whatever it is, Why? Let's assume that the counselor is reasonably skilled. The person has an ability to, to understand the thinking, the actions, the emotions of the person coming to them. They can help them sort through it. They can help them look at ways to behave, ways to think that are better, that would work better for them. So why didn't counseling work? I think there is a grand misconception regarding counseling or therapy, if you want to call it that. Therapy sounds therapy sounds a little more intellectual, doesn't it? And that is that many people have the idea. They don't really know how to capsulize this. But they believe that there is something that occurs in a therapist's office that's going to fix them. The mere fact that they're seeking some kind of quote-unquote professional help will make the difference. The truth is, they have to do the work. They're the ones that have to take whatever it is that they've learned in the office and apply it out of the office. That's where it falls apart. It's not that I can't give someone, I think, something that'll be helpful. I've been at this too long. But the hard part is convincing them to do it to alter their lives. The other problem is the time factor. People want change quickly. If they're in a place in their life that they're extremely frustrated or depressed or angry or resentful, whatever it is that is disturbing their peace, they want this over. Get it, get it away from me. Get it done. So they go to the counselor because they think they're going to hear something that magically, and they, they, don't, they wouldn't say magically, but I think they expect that there's some kind of mysterious process is going to alter their life circumstances. And when that doesn't happen, counseling didn't work. I saw a survey once, and I don't know if this is still the case, because I saw this many years ago. My own experience is that it's, it's pretty close to accurate. The average number of sessions that someone is in therapy is, are you ready, 
four. Now, why would this be? There's a lot of reasons for that, and I don't want to chase this too far afield. But I think one of these reasons is they're not seeing the improvement at the pace that they wanted to see the improvement, so therefore counseling's not working. That's very common. It's very, very common. Because they enter counseling with the wrong perspective. Something is going to happen in that office that is going to change my life. Or change the way I respond to my life. And, of course, this is a process that involves their effort and their motivation. And if they have that, they can get better in dealing with some of these things. And that does happen, of course. I've had a lot of people who come in and they're very, they're very willing to work at it and they improve. They do much better. Much better. But if they enter it with the idea of, I really don't like the way my life is going. i got to go fix it. And counseling's going to fix it. Much of the time they go away disappointed. They go away frustrated. Now there's one particular aspect of, I went to counseling, it didn't do any good. And that is what I call the deliberate didn't do any good. Not uncommonly, a marriage is in trouble. One of the spouses clearly wants out. Usually, there's a relationship on the side. The other spouse tries to save the marriage. So he or she convinces the spouse can we please go to counseling? Can we please try counseling? The spouse who wants to leave the marriage agrees. They come to counseling. But they have no intention of repairing that marriage. Their motive is to say, I went to counseling and it didn't work. It didn't do any good. So therefore, that's their way of putting a finality to the marriage. You see, I did what you asked, and it didn't change anything. Our marriage is as bad and irreparable as I've been telling you it is. I do see that. And that is why I take to asking people who come in my office for marital situations, each one of them, do you want to be here? And then I ask, do you want to save your marriage? Now, very few of them are so blatant to say, no. But they give off vibes. Do you want to save your marriage? Well, if things change, maybe. It's not, not a categorical yes. It's kind of a, a hedging fudge. And then you start to read it because you realize this person's not motivated. They're, they're coming here just to appease their spouse and to say, you see, you see, we're so far gone that even counseling doesn't work. So, if you're going to go to counseling, you're going to go to therapy, recognize you are the main person to make it work, not the therapist. 
Most therapists will give you some decent ideas you can latch on to. Now, some people will say, I couldn't relate to the therapist at all, and I understand that. A lot of therapists don't mesh well with the client. I got that part. But if this is a person that you really have no objections to, but they're saying things that require you to work, and then you don't, and then you say, see, I went to counseling, didn't make any difference. Got to look at yourself. Dr. Ray. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Heresy is not usually a matter of ignorance. It's a matter of arrogance. We're all ignorant. It's only about different things. And when I hear ignorant people say that they're stupid, my heart just breaks. I mean, to be ignorant is not to be stupid. Ignorance is fairly easy to remedy. It's a matter of learning. And St. Paul tells us to increase in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's confident that we can overcome our ignorance of Christ by getting to know Him better. And so he prays for the Colossians. We constantly pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, and lead a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, and to be fruitful in every good work, always increasing in the knowledge of God. Ignorance can be corrected. One has to die to arrogance. Cresta in the Afternoon, weekdays from 4 to 6 on Ave Maria Radio and the Ave Maria Radio app. Looking for community with like-minded single Catholics? Join hundreds of all ages from all over the country at the National Conference for Single Catholics taking place at St. John's Resort in Plymouth, Michigan, August 25th through the 27th. The weekend includes talks by dynamic speakers, music, social events, mass, adoration, fellowship, food, and more. Visit nationalcatholicsingles.com for details, and to register, use promo code MARIA for a discount. That's nationalcatholicsingles.com. hear this i was reading this article it says it's hard to believe 30 percent of car accidents in sweden and sweden's way up north there involve a moose what what are they doing letting them drive good to have you with me dr ray grandy this e-person monday let's get right to it our youngest adult daughter is in an interracial, I'm sorry, interracial relationship. My husband is very much against this. He was raised with a very hard upbringing in the South. I understand that old biases are difficult to let go. However, I personally am not willing to turn my back on my daughter. My husband is very angry and is pushing our daughter away. He is also pushing everyone else around him away, including me. 
The young man that she wants to marry is a nice young man. Finished his nursing degree and starting a new job. In the beginning, I too demanded she break off the relationship. Now, as I told you many times in the past, you might have forgotten, or maybe you didn't listen, or maybe this is the first time you listened. But as I have said many times in the past, when you make a definitive stand against someone that your adult offspring is in a relationship with, and and assuming this is not a person that is, is obviously, tremendously bad for them. This is just this is someone you don't approve of, you don't particularly like who they are, you have reluctancies about them, but but your adult offspring is absolutely headed in that direction. She goes on to say, Then my daughter kept the relationship secret. And that that's not unusual. If you force them to choose between you, the parent, and their new quote-unquote love, most of the time you're going to lose. That's the way it is. If you're willing to lose, you're going to lose contact with your adult offspring. I begged her to break it off. Obviously, she did not. (laughs) She explained to me that she wants to be happy. He treats her well. And she wants to be like everyone else who is in love. All right, so obviously she's telling mom, I really, really care for this guy. I don't care about his skin color. I care very much for him. This is putting a huge strain on my marriage. Since I have to live with the anger that explodes from my husband whenever I try to talk about it. Okay, mom, the first thing I'm going to say is quit trying to talk about it. You already know he's not going to budge. You're trying to find ways to convince him. I think the only thing that's going to convince him is hopefully over time, he realizes this is a good guy and the pigment in his skin doesn't make any difference. And that he will lose his daughter. Now here she goes on and this this is why I think she's frustrating herself. How can I help my husband see past his anger and love his daughter the way a father should? Now, see that question, how can I help my husband? See, it's saying that there is a way to convince him I just haven't found it yet. That's not true. That is not true. I'm a shrink. I'm supposed to know how to move people in one direction for their betterment. And I recognize that when somebody doesn't want to be moved, you're not going to move them. With any logic, with any reason, with any pleading, you're not going to move them. You have to do damage control. She goes on, if her relationship with this young man fails, I want her to be able to come to us. Well, no, she's not going to be able to come to us. She's going to come to you, Mom, because you're the one that's going to say, I accept him. Dad doesn't. So she'll come to you. If we push her away, she isn't going to want to do that. Now, again, you use the plural pronoun we. You're not going to push her away. You don't want to push her away. I know what you're going to say. If you were talking to me right now, you'd say, my husband doesn't want me to have any contact with him. My husband gets angry if I even talk about accepting this. 
I got it. So first thing you do is you quit talking about it. Second thing you do is you explain it to your daughter in no uncertain terms what's going on and that you are not of the same mindset as your husband. So you will keep a relationship with her even if it's a quiet one. My husband doesn't hear me when I try to explain this to him. How many times have you tried? What is the limit? See, for me, when I try to reach someone and it becomes clear in the first one or two tries that they're really obstinate about this and I'm not moving anywhere with them, I stop trying. Because all I'm doing is making them mad. All I'm doing is creating conflict. And if this is a relationship that I have to be in, like a spouse, then you pretty much have to avoid the topic. I don't know what to do. Well, this is <laughs> when I said in the, in the opening bumper music where the woman said, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, I don't either. Well, I don't know what to do at all to make your husband change his viewpoint. Everything you're describing in this very brief letter says he's not, he's not budging. He's not budging. If you say to him, and I believe you probably have, we're going to lose our daughter. I, I don't know what his reaction would be to that. I wouldn't be surprised if he would say, well, if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. Because then she'll have to choose between us and him. Well, he doesn't realize he'll probably lose. So at this point, I think you need to connect with your daughter and say, this is really what's going on. I've done everything in my power to get my dad over his, get your dad over his biases, and he won't budge. So I'm going to tell you, do everything you can so that this young man does not take this personally. This, this is not any way his fault. Uh, and I will do everything I can to have some kind of relationship with you without it creating total and complete chaos in our marriage. The daughter knows dad. I am sure that when the daughter first embarked upon this relationship, she knew exactly how dad was going to respond. So it's interesting. One might say, okay, she loves this fella, and her love for him is stronger than wanting to have her dad not react like this. But here's a question you've got to ask. When she first got to know him, and it wasn't clear that this relationship was going to progress, but she pursued it anyway. That tells me something. That tells me that her attitude was, at that time, Dad's either going to have to deal with this if this goes somewhere. Or I don't care. Because she grew up with her father. There's no way... She didn't know his perspective on all this. Hopefully, somehow, some way, this young man will soften him. The only way that would happen is that he has to become convinced that this young man 
is a responsible, caring, potential spouse, and maybe spouse, for his daughter. And he'll have to see that the skin color has nothing to do with it. Alrighty. Dr. Ray here. Program, The Doctor is In. Andrew, where is that music? There you go. Wondering where it was. I don't know if my clock's off or not. I was timing my talking to be done right when the music started. But it didn't start. Good to have you with me. This is The Doctor is In. Good Lord permit, and I'll see you in a couple minutes. Hey, I just want to remind you, carry EWTN with you everywhere. You can download the free EWTN app. That's right, you can listen anywhere. EWTN live TV, radio streams, audio, video on demand, news, program schedules. Download the app at EWTNapps, that's A-P-P-S, dot com. All right, let me go back here to where I'm going. So what happens when you have two emails. I, I, I mean, you're talking to a guy that, that basically wore his garage door opener for years because I wanted people to think that I had a pager. All right, let me go back here. This one's way back, so I gotta. I always gotta apologize when I finally get to an e person that's a couple months old. I say, please forgive me. They they back up. All righty, where are we at here? Six ten, Barbara. We adopted. <coughs> excuse me, our twenty eight year old daughter at birth. At her request, I assisted her at age 17 to establish communication with her biological mother. Over the years, they've had a sort of hot and cold relationship. So that's be, what, 11 years now. Birth mom and I are friendly. I have shied away from getting in the middle of their relationship. I've told my daughter... Theirs is an adult relationship, and I want to be mindful of not interfering. Boy, that's a a very mature approach. Birth mom is a nice person and is grateful to be involved in our daughter's life. She also reaches out to me and my husband socially for dinners, etc. We live close to her. My daughter lives in another state. So that probably makes the contact with birth mom... Uh, Definitely tough, right? When my husband and I have accepted invitations, we've several times been uncomfortable with birth mother's comments to us in public. My daughter is considering adoption to build her family. And her birth mother advised her against it, saying that, wait, wait, she'll, she'll get pregnant with a second child. And, and she would never love her adopted child as much. Oh, boy. Have I heard that one as an adoptive parent? My one son was age 14. He came to me, oldest son. He said, Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. Um, now he's starting to stumble around. 
Now, he's the kind of kid, very, very, very bright, soft-hearted kid. Um, would you, um, would you and mom love me, um, as much if if I was, and then he, he stopped, and I said, Andrew, if you were, if you were born to us, yeah, that's it. Andrew, who do I love more than anyone else in the world? He said, Mom. And I said, good answer. Because she was right there. I mean, I didn't want him to say somebody else. I said, am I, am I biologically related to Mom? No. I can't count how many times... Now, I'm not holding myself up as a great dad here. Don't Please don't mishear me. I'm just stating a fact. Can't tell you how many times I've told my kids, I don't see how I could love you more than I do. I just can't see it. Now, what's happening here is that birth mother is telling birth daughter, who was raised in an adopted home, well, you, you can't adopt because cause you, you won't love. You won't love that adopted child as much as you love a birth child. Now, first of all, that's a bogus piece of nonsense. But second of all, I would have to speculate that birth mom is trying to say my love for you as a birth parent is not something adoptive parents could experience. I think she's maybe motivated to say that. I am feeling guilty for these feelings. I'm considering having an honest chat with her, but my husband says we should just avoid future socializing. My daughter also feels uncomfortable with these comments that her birth mother has expressed. But I do believe my daughter wants this relationship. Dr. Ray, she falls into that 10% of adoptive kids. (laughs) That's right, it's about that, maybe less. Who struggle with having been placed for adoption at birth. Like your opinion on the best way to handle these comments. Well, the first thing I would do is, if she says something like that to me, I would say, how how can you say that? You can't know how much I love her. I raised her. But I would also... Rob, what is what is the reason for having a relationship with this woman? Why? Well, she's my daughter's birth mother. Well, yeah, your daughter's an adult now. She can have a relationship with her. It, it's like it's similar to, for example, a son-in-law or daughter-in-law's parents. Are are you going to have a relationship with her parents or his parents? I'm sorry, parents-in-law. Simply because they're in-laws? Why? I mean, you might because they could be great people and you enjoy your comp- their company and you have a nice relationship. But, but most people don't. Do I have an honest chat with her, Dr. Ray, to clear the air? Well, you can have an honest chat with her, but I'm not so sure it'll clear the air. Because she's of those opinions. And I think she's trying to say... The love of a birth mother is something that an adoptive mother can't know. Which, of course, if she thinks that, she's mistaken. But what are you going to do? You've got to change your mind. 
If you choose to address my question, feel free to shorten it. Too late. Too late for that. <laughs> I've been struggling trying to briefly describe it. Well, I kind of lean towards your husband. I would say, what what is the purpose of having all that socialization, especially if your daughter's not involved? It's one thing to say, well, yeah, we go out to eat and my daughter's with us. But she's not. So for the most part, I would just, you could easily slowly pull away from the relationship. There's no reason for you to have to have that relationship. It's between your daughter and birth mom. And... It sounds like your daughter is a bit uncomfortable with some of the things birth mom is saying, too. And that's not unusual. Some birth moms have a sense of guilt. They have a sense of regret. They, they have to compensate for what happened all that many years ago. And they do it in different ways. And perhaps, and I can't know this, but perhaps birth mother is saying, I love you, and I love you with a biological mother's love, and, and therefore any other kind of love. Just even though it may be a good love, it can't be a strong. Dr. Ray. Nice to have you with me, Dr. A. Grandy. This is E-Person Monday, a variant of the doctors in. Had to find a way to at least address some of the E-Persons that I've gotten and get. Uh, let's see what Mom has to say. Every once in a while we get, a, we get one that someone just wants to, uh, well, you'll see. Every night we pray for one of my high school teachers. He is in remission from cancer. Well, my almost four-year-old insists that we are saying the wrong name and that we should pray for Dr. Grandy. For months, we weren't sure where he got this from. We thought he made it up. Until last night, he finally said, No, Dr. Ray Grandy. So our toddler... And our family have been praying for you every night for probably half a year and didn't know it. Well, I just got one question here, Mary. Now that you know it, did you stop praying? Because I was feeling it. You tell your little guy, thank you. Where are we at here? Let's go to this one. I'm creeping up. I'm creeping up. I'm getting through June. Dr. Ray, I just wanted to let you know that you have been getting me through the behaviors of my two foster children. Well, a reading further into the e-person during the break, I don't think I am. At least not what she's describing. We've had them for a little over a year. And they are sweet little girls. Until they are not. <laughs> I love the honesty. 
Because half the people who come into my office describe a litany of trouble nine miles long, and then they say, but I'm giving you the wrong impression. He's really a good kid. And then, Dr. Ray, they are horrible. <laughs> I'm assuming you're talking about their behavior and not their personhood. <laughs> the temper tantrums could be described as needing an exorcist. All right, now I know mom's being facetious. She's kidding. However, let me digress. I have had parents, faith-filled Catholic parents, who question whether their five, six, eight, nine-year-old is being demon-oppressed because their behavior is so nasty. As I look at the scenario, at least as much as they describe, I find that there's a lot of reason for this kid to be this way, particularly because the parenting's discipline is so inconsistent or so weak or so erratic that the kid has learned to just fight him every step of the way. And as he gets older, he gets more intense. It had nothing to do with demons influencing him. Just a sidelight. She didn't mean that. I told my worker that I needed help. No response. So I started reading your book, Discipline That Lasts a Lifetime. Oh my gosh, Dr. Ray. Two days, and my husband and I are on the same page. We feel validated in our discipline, and you've given us the tools to feel a lot more confident in what we are doing. Currently, my seven-year-old is screaming over and over and over again in her room. She decided to hit and kick us. We had to shut her in her room. She colored all over her legs. Didn't leave an inch of her skin without color where she was yelling, I'm coloring all over my body in anger because I'm mad. And we have a plan to deal with this. And this is allowing my husband and I to remain calm throughout this horrendous experience. <laughs> she says... <laughs> The Benedictines are of Mary, and I'm assuming she's alluding to watching TV, are playing as loudly as possible to drown out the screaming so that the five-year-old can sleep. <laughs> A couple of observations here. You can assume that when you foster older kids, in this case, they were six and four, now they're seven and five, not only was their womb environment very treacherous, drugs, alcohol, neglect, poor care, which really, really does have an effect on the developing brain. It does. And then, for the children to be permanently taken from a birth parent, you have to know there was abuse or neglect in those very early years. And, in all likelihood, the kids saw and heard an awful lot to strip their childhood innocence. So, when you are a heroic foster parent, we need more foster parents, we truly do, you're going to face this stuff. In many cases, you're going to face this stuff. And it's going to be intense. 
you're going to look at this and say, oh, come on, I know kids do stuff, but man, this is off the charts. Well, yeah. And you'll deal with it. To the degree you are allowed by your caseworker, that's a, that's a big factor. Big factor. What are you allowed to do? And you'll see improvement. You really, you will. You will see improvement. She said they're sweet little girls. I got a feeling they weren't such sweet little girls when they were where they were before foster mom and dad got on the scene. So she's seeing progress by the millimeter, not by the meter. And that can be frustrating. You can recognize that you go two months without one of those incredible eruptions and then, on the basis of some minor trigger that you don't even see as causing any kind of problem, the child lets loose with a display that was unlike anything she's done in the last year. You're thinking, oh no, we're back to ground zero. No, you're not. No, you're not. You had a period of time when you didn't have those. And that's partly how improvement takes place. More and more time in between the horrendous exhibits. So yes, Mom, you hang in there. You're inching your way forward. And you're going to be dealing with some of this stuff. But uh, thank you for the book plug. Because yes, to the degree to the degree that your caseworker allows you to implement some of the things suggested in that book, you will see improvement. I'm pretty sure of that. Dr. Ray. If you're an optimistic Catholic, will you live longer? I'm Chuck Adica, and this is Journey Strong. My wife Susan and I recently lost a dear friend who almost made it to age 99. Varied studies suggest that we may have a better chance of living to near 100 if we are both emotionally aware and hold a positive attitude about life. Being optimistic is a Catholic thing, or it should be. We hold views that include man and God prevailing over darkness and evil, and all human life being highly valued and unique, all positive. But we need more than worldly optimism. We need true theological hope. The Catechism states, Hope is the theological virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life as our happiness, placing our trust in Christ's promises and relying not on our own strength, but on the help of the grace of the Holy Spirit. Now that's hope. For more on this, look to the Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. The following is a medical moment. Hi, I'm Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. An advanced care planning document, or ACP, is one kind of advanced directive, providing a written statement of a person's desired medical treatments in the future. A recent study titled, What's Wrong with Advanced Care Planning, concluded that there is a gap between hypothetical scenarios and real-world decision-making. Another study found that 80% of emergency room physicians misinterpreted an ACP as a do-not-resuscitate order. Another issue is that any disagreement between medical professionals and the patient's healthcare agent regarding specific ACP language may undermine the patient's ultimate wishes. Your best bet is never to sign an advanced care planning document, such as a pulse form when admitted to a hospital. And make sure your healthcare durable power of attorney has a provision which invalidates any previously signed ACP. This medical moment brought to you by MyLifeAngels.com. 
Uh, sometimes you read emails, you go to get in trouble. Some people aren't going to like it, but I respect it. Uh, this comes from a medical doctor and a professor at a university up north. Dear Dr. Ray, let me first say I'm a regular listener, and I love your show. I heard your comments to the grandmother of the four-year-old, quote, psychotic child after the chickenpox vaccine. Yeah, Grandma, I remember that call. It was a while back. Grandma was talking about uh, this child was was really acting kind of, I wouldn't say necessarily psychotic. Grandma labeled it that. But the child was uh, acting more uncontrollable. And it was post hoc. In other words, after the chickenpox vaccine. Now, because something happens after doesn't mean it was caused. That's a, that's a standard myth that people adhere to, and, and good researchers realize that's not true. Then he says, as an infectious disease physician and epidemiologist, in other words, understanding of where these illnesses are coming from in, uh, in the culture and, and in, uh, in the places, and as a professor who teaches infectious disease, epidemiology, and vaccinology in a graduate program, I'm a bit dismayed at the anti-vaccine misinformation that was given a pass on your show. In other words, I, I did not debate Grandma about this. And I explained to him why I didn't. Um, and the engagement of some of the vaccine misinformation that has come about. I do acknowledge that you made some attempt to encourage grandmother to have her daughter consider other vaccines. Yeah, I think it was a situation where where daughter didn't want to have any more vaccines. I said, well, wait a minute now. This is not all tarm with the same brush here. The caller said, quote, all those vaccines have aluminum in them. This is wrong. Only a small number do. And the vaccine in question, chickenpox, does not that. Even at that, the total amount of aluminum a child could potentially receive over their lifetime is about 4 milligrams, which is much, much less than the amount they will ingest with infant formula, baby food, and breast milk in their first six months of life. i got to respect what this guy says. He's an epidemiologist. i got to give him credit. And here's where he touches upon what I just said earlier. The other huge, and he capitalized huge, problem with this line of thinking is the post hoc fallacy. That means essentially, well, I'll let him explain. Because something happens after an event, it can't be presumed certainly it is because of the event. That's right. That's, that's standard research caution. It may be worth a consideration, but it's far from establishing causality. And then he talks a little bit about research. Dr. Ray, I don't expect you to be a vaccine expert. But when they are impugned falsely, my plea is that you either plead ignorance and stay in your lane, or better yet, make a lesson about the post hoc fallacy and confirmation bias and support of the scientific method. Anecdotal cases are not data. That's, that's very true. Very, very true. And people should seek out data that has a control group for comparison. That's, that's also very true. There's a lot of stuff out there that is, is false. And I explained to the doctor that I didn't want to get into a vaccine debate at that point. It was a short radio call, and I was attempting to explore other 
factors involved in this four-year-old's seemingly abrupt behavior in grandmother's view. And I explained that to him and said, yes, I, I didn't want to go off and start the debate about the vaccines because clearly when, when you have something that comes up like that and someone is very convinced about their perspective, uh, to convince them other li- otherwise would take a lot longer than a five-minute call. And so I focused on what I thought was the main issue there. And I did try to encourage her to rethink, because if you look at the research, vaccines have been a massive boon to our general health. They truly have. Many of these illnesses that we have eliminated killed people. So all that said... Thank you, sir. And I, and I do like to get these um, e-persons from from people who are very, very accomplished and expert in their area, and I give them credit. Dr. Ray, look at how the experts misled us during COVID. That is true. There were other experts, though, that gave another perspective. And so you you weigh it, you look at it, and you do your very best to understand it even though much of it is is beyond our ability to actually certainly come to a conclusion about. I understand that. I understand it. So, well, I got, let's get out of here, about a minute and a half. <laughs> Although I will say, just as an aside, I was perplexed, very perplexed, at uh, children getting the COVID shot given the mortality rate for children was was so, so low. And of those children, most of them had pre-existing serious conditions. So um, given that, one might, one might ask the question, what's the benefit here? And now we're also finding out, a recent study by Cleveland Clinic was kind of shaking up the world here, that uh, Cleveland Clinic came to the conclusion that... <laughs> He said it was apparent that the more boosters you got, the more it raised your chances of getting COVID. Well, fortunately, right now, the the uh, herd immunity is very high. And the the COVID illness for, foremost is, is now something very manageable. We, ha- we not only have techniques, but the variants tend to be are lo- far less lethal than the very earliest one. So just that said. So, Dr. Eight, time is up. It is over. I appreciate so very much you keeping me company on this E-Person Monday. Good Lord permit. I'll see you tomorrow. Walk with God. That will vaccinate you against all kinds of stuff. For information on Dr. Ray's presentations, books, and CDs, visit DRA.com and follow him on Facebook. The Doctor is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.